Zephaniah chapter 3, we'll read verses 11 through 14. Hear now the reading of the word of Almighty God. Zephaniah 3.11 In that day shalt thou not be ashamed for all thy doings, wherein thou hast transgressed against me. For then I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride, and thou shalt no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. I will also leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May the Lord bless us in the reading and hearing of it and in the preaching and receiving of it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, teach us to shout and rejoice to you, the Lord our God, for all of your great benefits. Bless us as we consider this passage of scripture filled with wisdom and instruction inspired by God and profitable for us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> for the last five Sabbaths, we've been looking at the book of Zephaniah. We did an overview of chapter 1, Incomplete Reformation Judged. Chapter 2, we saw a solemn call to repentance. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, we saw she received not correction or the importance of being teachable in the worship of God and the true religion. Then in verses 5 through 7, Surely thou wilt fear me, or the critical place of God's scriptures in revealing light to us, and that we must receive that light to be corrected and to grow. Last week, verses 8 through 10, we saw a pure language, or how the doctrines that God gives us are to be transformed into praise of God and doxology and the greatness of his name and glory, and also in his worship, joining together with God's people, fellowshipping in the things of God and in the worship of the Lord, that we are to encourage one another and provoke one another unto love and to good deeds. Now today we'll look at verses 11 through 14 of this chapter, a poor and afflicted people. Starting there at verse 11. In that day shalt thou not be ashamed for all thy doings, wherein thou hast transgressed against me. Now, if you recall from chapter 5, we read there that the wicked or the ungodly or the unjust, they know no shame. They have no shame at all. Why? Because their hearts were hardened. Their consciences were calloused. They did not condemn themselves when they sinned, and therefore they had no shame. They were abandoned to a life of sin. But here it says that the pious, those forgiven by God, that they shall have no shame. They shall not be ashamed. Why? Because God will fulfill his promises. That's why. That's why the believer has no shame. Though we have transgressed and our sins do bring shame in themselves, yet God will remove both our transgressions from us and has in receiving us through Christ, and at last, God will remove the transgressors from us. Let us hope then in God's promise 
God is a God who justifies and pardons, but he also promises to transform the universe. He says he will change it to a new heavens and a new uh, earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. The wicked will be removed, in other words. There is hope for us then, and we are not to be ashamed of our evil deeds on this ground. Verse 11 continues. For then I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride. God will take away, he says, those that rejoiced in their pride. Now men cannot do this. Who says they will do this? Is it the party that will remove all that offends? Is it the wisdom of the politician? Is it the strength of the businessman? Is it the legs of man? No, God says, I will take away out of the midst of thee them that rejoice in thy pride. The final blow, God says he will resist the proud, doesn't he? He does resist the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And here, this is the final stroke, the final blow. I will remove the prideful completely from the midst of thee. Verse 11 goes on, And thou shalt no more be haughty because of my holy mountain. Please open to Jeremiah chapter 7 concerning the haughtiness of those about God's very holy mountain. Jeremiah chapter 7, page 771. I've noted that Jeremiah and Zephaniah preached around the same times, and therefore they often cover the same themes. Jeremiah 7. We'll start there at verse 2. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all ye of Judah, that enter in at the gates to worship the Lord. Where was that? In God's holy mountain. Verse 3, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Trust ye not in lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if ye throughly amend your ways and your doings, if ye throughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if ye oppress not the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and shed not innocent blood in this place, neither walk after other gods to your hurt, then will I cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Okay, notice, what did they say was their bulwark? What was their defense? What was their boasting? The temple of the Lord, the holy mountain of God. It's here. Who can touch us? Well, God can, can't he? God can send his armies to come and destroy you. God can cause you to fall without rising again. The Westminster Annotations note, they were haughty in their pride, puffed up with it, swollen big because of my temple and their many prerogatives by it. Did they have prerogatives? Did they have privileges? Of course they did. Open to Psalm 46, page 613. Let's see about this holy mountain of God, this temple of the Lord. Was it a blessing for them to have the temple in their midst? Oh, yes, it was. Psalm 46, verse 4. There is a river, the streams whereof make glad, what? The city of God, the holy place 
of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her. And that right early. Were they privileged? Yes. Did they have a holy mountain where God met with them? Yes. Did God say that he was there on that mountain? Yes. Did they boast in that holy mountain? Unfortunately, they did. They boasted in their privileges, puffed up and swelled up with pride. Turn over to Psalm 48, one page over, 614, verses 2 and 3. Psalm 48. Listen, this is talking about this holy mountain, the mountain of his holiness, verse 1. Beautiful for situation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is known in her palaces for a refuge. Wait a second. You mean to tell me that all these promises are for nothing? You know, the prophets speak in language that must be understood in a certain light. When the prophets speak of the privileges and blessings of God's holy city, do you remember what Jeremiah said? Well, you come and commit adultery, you're murderers, you serve other gods, and you think the temple's going to save you? Even though God says this temple is great, this city is awesome. This is the place you want to be. It's beautiful. It's holy. It's a mountain. The great king on the north side, there is Zion, the bulwark of David. What a place to be. The joy of the whole earth. And yet, when you abuse that gift, what does God say? No. You must not boast in my holy mountain. That's what God says. Look over at Psalm 68. Look at these privileges they had with the city of God being among them. Page 623, verse 15 of Psalm 68. The hill of God is as the hill of Bashan, and high hill as the hill of Bashan. Do you guys remember Bashan? What was that? On the east side of Jordan, you remember that? Why is it that they needed the land of Bashan? Because they had a lot of cattle, didn't they? And what was Bashan good for? Growing beautiful, lush grass. Always flourishing. The bulls of Bashan were strong and big and fat and muscular. Bashan is the place to be. Bashan is the promised good land. Bashan is flourishing and green. So what is God's city? What is God's hill? What does he say here about this hill of God? It's beautiful and green and lush, and all who dwell and feed in that hill of God are fat in their spirits, are growing in grace. That's what he says. It's like the hill of Bashan, verse 16. Why leap ye, ye high hills? This is the hill which God desireth to dwell in. Yea, the Lord will dwell in it forever. God sits there ruling and reigning. He's going to dwell there forevermore in perpetuity. God's going to bless and prosper all around him. I note then this doctrine. The means of grace are a tremendous privilege. That's what the temple represented. That's the place where you offered sacrifice to God. That's the place where the psalms were sung by the holy priests where the beautiful instruments inspired by God, commanded by David and the prophets were played. 
That's where the sacrifices were offered after the order of Aaron. That's where you had Moses' law obeyed and the the golden ark was set forth, the temple of God, the beautiful city of God, the means of God's worship. Those within the visible church enjoy great privileges. But note, those privileges may be corrupted by pride. That's what he's saying. He says that they boasted about the holy mountain of God. They were haughty and prideful because of their privileges. Let us then humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. When we commune with God in his means of grace, let it never be corrupted to haughty boasting in the things of God. Did you know the first commandment requires that we not trust in the means of grace? That we not put our confidence and boasting and hope in the means of grace, but in God himself? Because if you take the holy mountain of God and all of his means of blessing and the beautiful and lush green grass and the city of the great king, and you say, that's where my hope is, guess what God says? Well, your hope's not in me anymore. Your hope is now in the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord are these Your hope is in the bread and the wine. Your hope is in the scriptures, the preaching and hearing of it, the reading and exhortation, the doctrines, your prayers, the prayers of God's people, your baptism. Your hope is in the means of grace. Your boasting should be in the Lord, he says, not in the means he seeks to benefit you with, but in God himself. Let us not trust in the means of grace, but rather in the God of all grace. We use the word means of grace because they're not the end in themselves. They're a means that leads us to God himself to trust in him, not in the means. Please turn back to Zephaniah chapter 3, page 944. Verse 12. I will also leave in the midst of thee an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. Notice the contrast there. The haughty and the afflicted. The afflicted and poor. These, they trust in the temple of God, in the mountain of his holiness. Who do these trust in? God himself. They trust in the Lord. Quite a contrast. I will also leave in the midst of thee. This is the same verb of a remnant, the noun of a remnant that God left who had not bowed their knees to Baal. A remnant according to the election of grace. It's the same word, just in verb form. God will remnantize. God will leave behind. He'll let stay back an afflicted and poor people, he says, in the midst of thee. That is, Judah, Jerusalem, and Israel. God has an election of grace by his almighty power. For his eternal glory, he's left a people who are afflicted, he says, and poor. Now this word afflicted is ani. It means one who is poor, one who is humble, one who has been afflicted. 
In fact, in the law, these are the people you had to let glean in your land that you couldn't shave off the corners of your field. Why? So that the poor could come and glean in it. These are the poor. Literally, that's what it means. It can also mean one who is oppressed by the rich and the powerful, the poor in spirit or afflicted in Israel, who came and were afflicted by those who were wicked, either from the Gentile nations or within Israel itself. Now, was David poor? Not in the first sense, but in the second sense. He was poor and afflicted because Saul came against him to destroy him. The Philistines came against him to destroy him. Though he had a crown of gold of several hundred talents, he was very rich, you might say, in worldly matters. He was still a poor and afflicted man. Deuteronomy 24, 14 says, Thou shalt not oppress an hired servant that is poor and needy. There's our primary sense. Now, please turn to Psalm 14 concerning the secondary sense. Psalm 14, verse 6, page 595. We'll see the shades of meaning of this Hebrew word, poor or afflicted. Psalm 14, verse 6. Ye have shamed the counsel of the poor, because the Lord is his refuge. Notice there the characteristic of the poor. Where does he go for safety? Where is his refuge? The Lord himself. This is the idea of the afflicted or the poor. Turn over to Psalm 22, page 600. Psalm 22, verses 23 and 24. Starting there at verse 23, Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. All ye the seed of Jacob, glorify him. And fear him, all ye the seed of Israel, for he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. There's our word. Neither hath he hid his face from him, but when he cried unto him, he heard. Now, this is primarily a passage prophesying of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He was afflicted. He was broken and bruised. He was persecuted. Though he were rich, yet he became poor for our sakes. Do you remember this? That we, through his poverty, might be rich. God designed in the gospel that Christ would be afflicted. And when we are afflicted for his sake, he suffers with us. We enter into his afflictions. We enter into his sufferings. We are an afflicted people. Please turn over to Isaiah chapter 48, page 748 of your pew Bibles. Isaiah 48, verse 10. We note here God's election again is brought up. Verse 10. Behold... I have refined thee, but not with silver. I have chosen thee in the furnace of what? Affliction. God's choosing and calling a people is that we might be poor and afflicted. That's how he refines us. That's how he calls us. That's how he elects us to be a poor and afflicted people. Turn over to Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. 
Verse 1, Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that ye build unto me? And where is the place of my rest? Here again, God is mocking people who trust in the means of grace. Oh, you trust in the house. What are you talking about? You think I need that? Verse 2, For all those things hath mine hand made, and all those things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is what? Poor and of a contrite spirit, and that trembleth at my word. This is how David could have hundreds of talents of gold upon his crown and be poor. Why? Because he trembled at the word of God. He feared to offend God. So he wanted to listen carefully to God's word so that he could do it, so that he could believe it, so that he could obey its precepts. God is high and holy, and he says, this is the person that I will look to with favor. This is the person that I will give my grace to, not the proud whom I resist, but to the afflicted, to the poor. These here that tremble at the word of God, those are the poor and afflicted. I note then this doctrine. God's elect will be afflicted and poor in spirit. Those that God has chosen, he has chosen in the furnace of affliction. Those that God has chosen will be afflicted and poor in spirit. Though they are attacked, chastened or humbled, though facing famine or nakedness or sword, what do they tremble at? What do they actually are afraid of? What do they tremble at but God's word? This is the afflicted and poor people. Let us then, in all of our sufferings or chastisements, whether in your mind, in your body, in your goods, in your estate, in your relationships, what should you do? Raise your eyes to God's word. Tremble at his word. Suffer affliction together with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God says, You're boasting in my holy mountain. You ought to be boasting in me. I'm going to chastise you so that you stop boasting in the means of grace and you boast in the Lord. You hear his word so that you can fear him and do his will. May our afflictions remove our pride in the means of grace in God's holy mountain. And if we are tempted to put our confidence, Lord, I was baptized, I partake of the Lord's table, I read your word every day. What did the Pharisees say? I fast twice in the week, I give tithes of all that I possess. Were those bad things? No. You know, maybe a little superstitious about the fasting. God never said to do it twice a week. He didn't appoint the specific days. But certainly fasting is good. Tithing is good. Great. You ought to have done those things and not left the others undone. Mercy, faith, and the love of God. Let our afflictions then wean us from our folly, bring us off of our confidence in creatures, and put our confidence completely in God speaking to us in his word. That's the point of scripture. It's God speaking to us. It's not a book we get points because we read it or heard it. 
It's a book that directs our faith and our obedience to God himself speaking to us in the pages of this book. Let us then, when we are chastened, when we suffer in our mind, body, goods, estates, or relations, raise our eyes from creatures to God himself. He says, not only, let's turn back to Zephaniah chapter 3, not only are they a uh, afflicted people, he also says they are a poor people. Now the word can even be translated as thin. person who doesn't have enough food to live on, they thin out, right? This can be poor, weak, low, thin. Remember the pride swells up the person. They're swollen with pride. They're boasting about it. These people who boasted. This person is not so. Not mighty in worldly wisdom. Not rich in the eyes of men. Not swollen in prosperity, but rather a poor people. And he says, they shall trust in the name of the Lord. They've been chosen to the furnace of affliction. They've come to tremble at the word of Almighty God. They've been chastened by God in their body, in their mind, in their goods, in their names, in their relations. Here's what God's working in them. Faith in Him. Not in the creatures. Not in the means of grace. The best of creatures are the means of grace. Don't trust in those, God says. Put your faith, direct it away from the temple of God and to the mountain of my holiness where I dwell, beautiful in the joy of the whole earth as the hills of Bashan. Turn your mind away from that and put your confidence in me, he says. This is what happens to an afflicted people chosen by God in that furnace of affliction. God works faith in them. God causes our afflictions to make us glorify Him more. And that's His goal. God works all things for our good, including our afflictions, especially our afflictions. He's causing us to come off of our addiction to creatures and ourselves and our comforts to say, No, Lord, my confidence is in You. My faith is in Your provision, in Your wisdom, in Your working all these things for good, not my schemes and my wisdom, and my providing for myself. God's design in our suffering is to draw our eyes off of ourselves, even off of our sufferings, off of our poverty, our afflictions, and sorrows, onto God himself. That's God's design. That's what he's doing. And when we receive such gifts of God which do not appear to be gifts. They appear in another garb. Remember, Satan appears as an angel of light. He's actually a demon of death, demon of darkness. God might appear to you as bringing darkness into your life, but what's he actually bringing? Light. Which one do you want? You want the appearance of light or the actual light? Which is it? God gives you a choice. Which one will you take? And so we, when we receive these dark times of chastisement, of affliction, of poverty, of whatever it is, let it have its intended work. Trust in God more and more, less and less in ourselves and other creatures. Let us grow in faith. As our outer man perishes, our inner man is to be renewed day by day. When the rod chastens us, 
Do we kick at it? I don't want that. Remember what he said in Hebrews 12? Do not despise the chastening of the Lord. Do not let your knees buckle and your feet go out of the way. God tells you where to go for the spanking, and you say, but I don't want to go there. That's going to hurt. That's going to be difficult. And God says, yes, my child, I have good for you. I have faith that I'm working in you. I'm building up. I'm refining you, not with silver, but in the furnace of affliction for your good. Embrace the rod that chastens. We'll see this from Psalm 23 shortly. Please turn, well, we're still there. Zephaniah 3, verse 13. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity. Matthew Poole comments on this. It's not a prediction of a sinless, but of a reformed state. They shall be righteous and taught of God, no more idolaters. That is the great iniquity, is idolatry. God considers that the chief sin, to make a graven image, to worship in ways he hasn't commanded. God says that's the chief sin because our ultimate allegiance, the great commandment, is to love God. Now you love a creature, your own work of your own hands. You love that. So God hates that. That's the chief iniquity, and they will cease from it. He goes on and gives a commandment from the second table. Nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. Now men who do not trust in God's providence, in his provision, what will they tend to do to get what they want, to get what they think they need? They will lie. They will say what they think needs to be said in order to get what they want. Approval, money, esteem, whatever. Position, power, it doesn't matter. They want something and they don't think God can quite get it to them. And therefore they lie their heads off. They say whatever they think needs to be said in order to get what they want. Here he says, my people will not be like that. They're not going to continue in the idolatry of swearing to Milcom, saying that they worship God and being divided in their worship with other gods. No, they're going to stop that iniquity and they're going to stop speaking lies. They won't have a tongue that is deceitful. Remember Satan, the subtlety that he used? That's deceit. That's a tongue of deceit. It doesn't quite speak frankly. It doesn't say the actual facts of the case. It says what I think I should say to get my way and my desires. What did you do, you might ask your child. You know what they'll often tell you, and some of them in particular more than others, they'll tell you what they think you want to hear in order to get what they want, which is not a spanking perhaps. Or to, to seem like a righteous person, to be esteemed as a good kid. Well, I know this is what actually happened, but my instinct is I want to say, what does mommy want to hear? I'll tell her that. Maybe that'll get me off the hook. That's a deceitful tongue. Because we don't trust in God, and we don't trust in his righteousness, we don't trust in his provision, we have to be righteous in ourselves. And how do I do that? I excuse my evil deeds. This is the deceitful tongue. If our hope and our faith is in creatures, we will be liars. If our faith and our hope is in God, rather than our policy and our subtlety, we will speak the truth. That's as simple as that. God's remnant, God's afflicted and poor people will not commit these sorts of iniquities and idolatries. They will not speak lies. They won't have the subtlety. Paul said it's simplicity. 
You speak what you think. You say what you believe to be the case, what you think is true, as informed by God, it actually is true. You speak that. He goes on. For they shall feed and lie down. Bringing us back to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Why is that so important? He's going to feed me. Do I need to lie to get what I need, to get what I want? No. God provides for me. What else does he do? He maketh me to lie down in green pastures, for they shall feed and lie down, he says. God causes me to lie down in this fat pasture of Bashan. He leadeth me beside the still waters. I have peace. I have provision. I have food. I have drink. I have everything I need. Why do I need a lying tongue? Why do I need deceit coming out of my mouth? God provides for me. I note then this doctrine, liars are unbelievers. The deceitful tongue is a faithless tongue. Liars are unbelievers. The deceitful tongue is a faithless tongue. Believers will not speak lies, nor have deceitful tongues in their mouth. Why? Because they trust in God's provision. That's what he's saying. God's going to lead me to the green pastures. He's going to make me lie down and have peace. Why do I need to lie? I don't. I don't need to lie. I don't need to bend the truth. Believers trust in God's provision, in his control of the future, and therefore they may do their duty of speaking the truth to their neighbor and leaving the results to God. If you say the truth that you are guilty of a sin, God already knows that, doesn't he? Who are you, who are you trying to kid, men? Who do you think is your judge, men? But if you think God is my judge, he already knows I sinned, I've confessed this sin to him, or I will very shortly... You can tell the truth. You can confess your sins. You can acknowledge what you've done that is wrong. So I exhort us, let us trust in God and speak the truth. It's that simple. Trust God, say what is true. Beware of satanic subtlety rather than godly simplicity in your speech. Many people will say things, and we're all tempted to do this. I'm not excluding myself or any of us. This is what we all do. We use indefinite ways of speech to cover our tracks, don't we? If I say it not too specifically, they won't detect that I actually did the thing. Let me just kind of say this in a general way. And then they won't realize that I participated in the sin that they're asking about. So, I'll just put it more generally. Indefinite ways of speech to cover your tracks. Shifts. Or subtle evasions. Oh, they're asking about this. I'll talk about this. But it'll sound like I'm talking about that. And they'll never notice. And I'll get away scot-free. Subtle shifts and evasions by which we seek to excuse our sins or to blame others for something that we've done. Do you remember David? After the report came back about Uriah the Hittite being slain. Do you know what he said? Well... The sword devours one as well as another. That's just warfare, you know? People die in war, duh. Is that actually what he should have said? No. You designed his death, David. 
That's the point. Your conscience is telling you this, and you're doing a little shift or evasion, something that's true, but doesn't actually fit the conversation, does it? You just heard about the very man that you murdered, and now you give a general maxim of warfare. No, that's not how it flies. That is a shift, that is a lie, that is an evasion. We must be cautious not to blame others. Maybe two or three people did a sin. And your mom asks you, or your, your spouse asks you, your husband or your wife asks you, what did you do? Well, there were some people doing a bad thing over there. Well, that's true. There were some people who did a bad thing. Were you one of them or not? The shift says, well, let's speak indefinitely. Yeah, there were, yeah somebody did. I don't, know. I don't know what happened exactly. You know, a little mental reservation there. Did you do it or not? Confess your sins. Trust in God. God knows already that you did it. Why are you trying to hide it? And if you don't know, do you have a deceitful tongue? Ask your parents. Ask your friends, especially if you have a faithful friend who will tell you the truth about yourself. Ask them, do I deceive? Do I use my tongue deceitfully? Do I say things so that I can avoid responsibility? or blame others, or make myself look better? Is that something I do? You might even ask your children if you do that. Your siblings, your husband, your wife. Do I use deceit in my speech? Do I justify myself or make excuses for my deeds when I don't do what I should? Do I cover for myself? Or do you know me as a frank person who speaks what I think? That's what you should ask. Find out if you want to know. Ask people who are around you and observe you. And if you have a good friend who cares enough to rebuke you, ask them their opinion. Do I do these things? Because God's elect hate lies. We might practice them, but we hate them. I'm trying to help you get out of that trap. That's what I'm doing. We all ought to help one another in this very way. Notice verse 13. He says, None shall make them afraid. Let's read context. The remnant of Israel shall not do iniquity, nor speak lies. Neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth, for they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Why? They have a shepherd there, don't they? He goes on in Psalm 23, verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why is that, David? Why will you have no fear where you ought to be afraid? in the valley of the shadow of death. Why? For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Wait, what does the shepherd do with his rod? He spanks the sheep, doesn't he? He puts them back in line by the furnace of affliction. He strikes them. He might grab them around the neck and pull them. That's not pleasant. But they comfort you? That's what David's saying. God is present God is watching, God is providing, God is chastening, and therefore I fear no evil. For they shall feed and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. God's presence, God's promise, God's provision, God's chastisements, these give us comfort and remove our fears. Do you want to be a fearful person? Don't trust God's provision. Don't accept his corrections. Put your hope in creatures. 
Put your hope in the means of grace and you will have fear of plenty. You will have fear enough and to share with other people. You will be overcome and overwrought with fear. You will lie to deceive others. Your tongue will speak nothing but deceit because you don't trust God. But if you trust in the Lord, you will be as strong as Mount Zion. You may speak the truth freely. Fear God then. Learn from his chastenings. Trust in his promise. Receive his provision. Repent of a deceitful tongue and your fears will be beaten back and destroyed in due time. None shall make them afraid. Now note verse 14. Remember how the tongue leads to the praise of God? God gives us a new lip, a new speech, and then that leads to his glorious praise. Verse 14. Sing, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. God repeats himself here. Did you notice that? Sing, shout, be glad and rejoice. He also repeats the parties, daughter of Zion, Israel, daughter of Jerusalem. As I said, the daughter of Zion is a figure of speech for a whole body of people known as Israel speaking to their weakest part. Are you weak? Are you vulnerable? I'll look after you. Rejoice, don't be afraid. Think of all the benefits I've just promised to you. Think of how I work good even through your afflictions. Think of how I will destroy the proud and take them away and take away all your shame for your evil deeds. Think of justification. Think of the renewal of the new heavens and the new earth. Stop lying. Repent of sins. You will not do this. You will not trust in your own ways and your own provision for yourself. Now you have things to sing. Now you have cause to rejoice for all these promises, for all of his provision, for all of his care. Let your soul well up with thanksgiving, with praise, and with song. James says in chapter 5, verse 13 of that glorious epistle, Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Do you have a thankful heart that wells up with gladness? God gave you a book. You can sing from it. He has songs to tell you how to rejoice that is befitting God and is good for your soul. Shout, O Israel, he says. Is he saying go around and yell all the time? No. This is the vigor of our joy that swells up from within, wells up like a spring and shoots out. As the truth impresses the mind, as repentance moves our wills, as our affections are lively and hot for God, we will shout for his glory. When you sing God's praise, do you shout it? Or do you mumble it? Or somewhere in between? Because if you have the right spirit and the right thought, God says make melody with your heart and what comes out of your heart are your words. Is that how you're supposed to sing the Psalms? No. Shout, he says. And then he goes on. Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Not half-hearted, not gloomy, not sour and dour, not fearful and halting. You know, when an animal kind of limps along, they're shaking and they're afraid and they're halting along. 
Don't be like that. Rejoice, he says, let this move you. Rejoice with all the heart, not half the way there. I note then this doctrine. God's gospel is a merry message. It is a delightful doctrine. Here is a threefold repetition. Sing, shout, be glad, and rejoice. Is there some base God didn't cover here? No. He covers it all. God's gospel is a merry message, a delightful doctrine. I say then, let us all rejoice in God's goodness. Let us recall his truth. Let us comfort ourselves, banishing fear, repenting of lies, and mistrust. Let us learn from our chastisements and afflictions. Let us humble ourselves and tremble at his word. Then let us sing. Let us praise God with all the heart. Let his joy be our strength. Let his rod and staff be our comfort. His promises are green pastures. And his means of grace, not an end in themselves, but a means to ground our faith more solidly upon God himself. And thus far the explanation of Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 11 through 14.